Before we get started, I do want to apologize today if my audio is a little bit echoey. I'm in a new apartment and I haven't properly soundproofed my recording studio yet, but this should just be for a little while here. And the interview was recorded at my old place, so it should sound okay from my end. Just just a heads up. <laughs> You're listening to Attempt Adventure, a podcast about finding adventure every day and making life more interesting. From Bangkok, Thailand, I am Michael DeRosiers, joined by my co-host... James Barrett from sort of cloudy Texas today. Humid and cloudy. Sounds like here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have thought about that before, how similar summers are here. To the dry season of Thailand. It's very similar. The climate, hot. You have never been here in April. It's just around the corner, and I am filled with dread. (laughs) (laughs) For context, April is the hottest month here in Thailand. Enjoy. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, in this episode of Attempt Adventure, we have our very first interview. I talked to my brother, who is currently living and studying in Tel Aviv, Israel. And we talk about everything from connecting with local culture to how to manage expectations when traveling in a famous site. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, But before we get into that, James, what did you do this week? Did you do anything interesting or new? I did do something new. It's not super interesting, but it is new. Um, I made... Homemade chicken noodle soup for the first time ever. How did you? I did. I was feeling a little under the weather, and I was like, I want soup, but I don't want canned soup. So I made chicken noodle soup, and it was delicious. I'm making more right now. That's my dad's remedy for jet lag. And so every time I come home from Thailand, he's got a big pot of chicken noodle soup ready for me, which is really nice. This week here has been kind of rainy, kind of gross. It's been a little too gross to, like, get outside and do a bunch of stuff. I had big plans for this week. I was going to go get some more drone shots and just practice my videography and cinematography. But it just didn't work out this week. You know, I started feeling kind of bad on Monday. And so I had big plans. I was planning on getting all my stuff done before I leave for Colorado on Friday. And it's just not panning out. I remembered we still need to do something. Even little things. And I was actually thinking of, of this when I was like, I'm going to make chicken noodle soup. Yeah, what about you? So my very first year, I had tried to go to a place called the Thailand Corrections Museum. It's a prison museum. From the name, I think you can imagine it's not a very pleasant place. <laughs> I was really interested in going there, but it was closed for renovation, and I never made my way back there. But this Saturday, I got to go on a brand new walking tour about Bangkok's bloody past, all the gruesome places from history, which was fascinating. And we finally got to go to this museum. Uh, There's this prison in downtown Bangkok, or kind of Bangkok's old town area, that was in use from the 19th century until the 1980s. Nowadays, the, the big walls and the guard towers are still there. And there's some displays about the history. Um, I will tell you two incredibly horrific facts. One not so horrific, one very horrific. Two ways that 19th century Siam executed people. First way is pretty normal. It was with a sword, just beheading with a sword. The second way... (laughs) The second way... (laughs) um, They would... (laughs) This is just ridiculous. They would take almost a giant wicker ball, and they would make the person to be executed, crouch inside this giant ball. And then they would bring out an elephant and they would let the elephant kick the ball until the person died. (laughs) That could take forever. I mean, basically until the neck breaks, I would guess, or until he gets enough brain damage. I can't, I don't know. It's it's horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. You know, that's that's the time where you're sitting there and you get sentenced to death and you're like, please not the elephant. 
Please, not the elephant. So that kind of goes into what we're going to be talking about next week when we talk about being a tourist in your own city. Um, But that's a story for another time. Today, we are going to be talking about my interview with my brother. And before we get into that, before we launch that, I just want to send a reminder to all of our listeners to participate in our monthly challenge. This month, your challenge is to make a cup of coffee outside and... After the challenge is finished, our three favorites are going to win prizes. We're going to send you some stickers, so be sure to enter. Take a picture of the coffee that you've made outside. Hashtag attempt adventure. I did get the stickers in, so hold on. Let me... There it is. That is a beautiful sticker. I like that. I would put that on my stuff. Yeah. I hope I win. Me too. (laughs) Well, very cool. So, uh, listeners, the stickers look great, so be sure to enter. And now, on to the interview. Welcome back to Attempt Adventure. I'm your host, Michael DeRosiers, and today I am joined by an extraordinarily special guest, our very first guest my younger brother, Kyle DeRosiers. Kyle is a world traveler, and he has had some very unusual experiences during 2020 and 2021, despite the ongoing global pandemic. And today we're here to have a little chat about what he's been up to, some of his adventures, and how he manages to connect with local culture whilst behaving responsibly in these unprecedented and unpredictable times. So, Without further ado, I am now joined by Kyle DeRosiers, live from Tel Aviv, Israel. Hi, everyone. Howdy, shalom. I like to go into my class as I say that. And I've, I've actually learned to tell people that I'm from Texas rather than the U.S. because I think it's a little bit more interesting, a little less political. And so I really have found my Texas pride. Anyways, um, I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, that's one of my big travel tips, is whenever anyone asks, where are you from? You always say, I'm from Texas. And then they go, oh, cowboy, pew, 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 pew. And you don't have to get into anything else. Now, Kyle, you've got a beer. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your beer that you have before we get started today? It's from, it's a craft beer from Malka Brewery, which means queen, uh, It's actually, it's a girl's name here, but I also know people who have it as their surname, and it is a blonde ale from here in Tel Aviv. Uh, I don't drink a lot of Israeli beers, actually. There's not a whole lot, but this this is one of the ones that I don't think I've had, so I'm excited for it. So trying a new beer could be an adventure, right? Just doing something new that you've never done before. Even these little, of course. I mean, little little, little things, things, mundane things, can be an adventure. And look, I know I'm fortunate. Most people don't get to do this in this year. So even when you know I don't get to do everything that I want, and I have to do some some things in some weird ways for for health and safety's sake, you know, I I get to do a lot. So definitely have gratitude for that. Well, why don't you crack that baby open and give us your tasting notes? I I know nothing about Israeli beer. Israelis drink a lot of beer. I don't really know if there's a fancy way to let it breathe. Do you do that with I think beer? That's, I think that's wine. <laughs> I don't do that with beer. I mean, I crack that thing open and it's down my gullet. Well, I'm a poor graduate student. I, I have learned not to be picky. Well, Kyle is infamous for imbibing in the grossest of spirits, gin. <laughs> When you come to Israel, you'll have to try a rock, which in Turkey it's called Raku, or in Greece it's called Orzu, and there's something similar in Arab countries. It's, it's an anise spirit, and maybe you've had it in some of your travels, but I had it in Turkey. Um, don't tell mom. You know, it was just a little bit. I, I wasn't rambunctious, okay? But, I mean, I was, I was young, and it's really, I thought it was so disgusting. It's like mm. clear, and you mix it with water, and that's how you drink it. Cold, very cold. You pour it with the water, it turns white, like this milky white. And Interesting. And the smell is, is pungent, so strong, just like cleaning of, supplies. Of like, like licorice, Licorice. Yeah. But then, here in Israel, on Purim, I tried Arak, and I said, "What? it's not that bad. So tastes do develop. I've never had that. I've actually never, never heard of that. I've had uh, absinthe, but that's more like 
yeah, it's kind of licorice-y, but it's, I think it's wormwood, and it's certainly not the same thing, I think. It's, it's nice. It's, I, I like, uh, I like it. I wish you could try it. It's a little bitter, but not too bitter. Great. Well, why don't you start out by telling us where you are right now and what you're doing there? Well, I am here in Tel Aviv, Israel. It's 4.21 p.m. I'm here in my tiny little dorm that's about the size of a, maybe a one-car garage, but it has a kitchen and a toilet and these kinds of things. I am a student here. I'm in the conflict resolution and mediation graduate program, so I got a Fulbright grant, and I've been here since October, and I've been learning about conflict, and, and I'm have to tell you, I am so tired of Israelis telling me that I've come to the right place. You know, I tell them, oh, I'm studying this. And they're like, oh, well, you came to the right place. And I just, well, come on, like, I don't want to hear that joke anymore. You know, I mean, it's true. I mean, but... I'm glad you said that because I was just about to say that. Okay, well, <laughs> I won't say that then. Um, <clears throat> but it's very cool what you're doing. And it is really interesting. And the pictures that you've sent me have all been just incredible. Great. So yeah, so you've been there for a few months already. You're kind of settling in and keeping busy. Uh, first of all, what does what does adventure mean to you? How do you define that? Well, in the style of some of my favorite philosophers, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not roller coasters. That's torture. It's not heights either. But for me, adventure is meeting new people. It's learning, creating art or creating you know, something with words. These are the things that, that I love the most. You know, that's like these kinds of things. Travel, learning, meeting people. And for me, that's the greatest adventure there is. So while I never feel tempted by a roller coaster, I'd be hard-pressed. Well, you know, we have our, ups, our bad days and our good days. But generally, I'm hard-pressed to turn down an opportunity to try something new or weird. As long as it's not, like, dangerous. <laughs> I consider you to be... And yes, you you know, you have done these outdoors adventures. I mean, you've done a lot of hiking. And, That's true. You know, you did your, your work in Rocky Mountains National Park. But I would consider you to be sort of a cultural adventurer, which is something that I'm really interested in as well. So what's your inspiration? What inspires you? I mean, moving halfway across the world to Israel in the best of times is a big thing to do. I don't know. I mean, I first got the bug whenever I was 17 and I got that, that scholarship to go to Turkey. I was in this new place, living with new people, not being able to communicate very well, not, you know, totally aware of how to how to move around in the world even, much less in a foreign country. You know, I went there and I had some very funny and embarrassing experiences. I had to do this... Turkish folk dancing, this like cultural activity that we had to rehearse like several times a week. And then at the very end of the program, we presented it for our host families. And I have two left feet. It was, it was not pretty. It was funny because my friend put this video on like a Snapchat story. And it was like, if they chose to feature it for like the day's video and oh, no. 10 million or so people, I don't know how many they saw it, but my friends in Texas saw it. And they saw this horrible video of me dancing and in the middle of Turkey, like, what are the odds, you know? And But <laughs> that was a blast. Um, and, you know, just, just haggling with people. Like, haggling became so much fun. How do you try to get a better prize? How do you, you know, there's this impulse to, like, to compete and to, to try to um, have that rapport. And so that, that was very fun. But, but mostly it was just, you know, it was just very humbling to hear uh, the stories of my host family and my new friends. Right. Um, and it was it was very interesting because I got to know, you know, different Turks from different backgrounds. Some of them were Kurdish, um, you know, who mm -hmm. are a minority that has really historically been very um, oppressed in Turkey. And so, you know, they, I got to meet my my uh, friend's host family who were, who were Kurdish. And I got to meet my family, who's the father was a, a politician and the mom was a radio host. And I had a host brother who showed me all around the city, I don't know. So that's where I first got inspired, I think. I think that for a lot of people, when they do go to a country that's vastly different from their own, they, you know, something, a lot of times something just clicks where you realize, you know, people are the same no matter where you are. And it's those things that are fundamentally the same that tie us together. But it's the things that are different that make it so interesting and it makes you want to travel all around the world and experience all of these things that are yes. different. 
from yeah. country to country. And and I think once you have experienced that the first time, once you've wandered through the streets of Turkey, you start to think, wow, you know, what is the rest of the world like? This is such a big world that we live in, such a big and diverse world, and I want to see it all. And and when I was younger, I had this idea in my head. I was like, I'll go to every country, you know, but, but now I've sort of developed this attitude instead that I would rather spend a lot of time in certain places and really get to know them and really just try to be very present. And that's sort of the philosophy I've developed now. And then I try not to think of it as much of a list anymore. And so I've, I've, I've kind of appreciated that in my time abroad. And so I really appreciate this so much to live here for this long. Have you had any big challenges or any, any difficulties that you've had to overcome while you've been there? Difficulties? You know, the culture is different. People warned me before I came, you know, like, like people from America who, I, who I'm friends with who have been over here. They were like, you know, Israelis can be so brash and so like, so abrupt and so direct. It sort of is, can be jarring as someone who's from the South, you know, and, and we, have, we have our French Canadian blood. So maybe that even makes us more sort of passive, more accommodating. Coming from Texas, coming here, I realized that like every interaction with, you know, someone who's doing you a service or where you're buying a good or where you're selling something, it's a serious negotiation. You know, and it's never personal. Mm. It is, the relationship is always a priority, but people are seriously tough bargainers and you really have to fight to get a fair price. You have to fight with maintenance to get them to come in a timely manner. It's a little bit like France, you know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, maybe maybe it'll take weeks to get something done that may take days, you know? And I don't know, I think it can be a little frustrating because the simplest things like, I was overcharged for a rental car and I just had to call them and email them many, many times and sort of fight with them. And uh, I don't know. But so that can be frustrating. People can can just be much, much more direct and a little bit more guarded. And it's sort of is a culture that's a product of like, OK, this this country has really endured a lot of war. And, you know, it's a country made up of refugees who are the, the ancestors of the people living there now. So it's it's it makes sense that they would be more. Uh, guarded sort of in the culture but at the same time I've experienced generosity that I wouldn't find in America strangers offer to help you all the time you know I like fell down once and strange so many strangers came and offered to help or one time I forgot my wallet and someone I've never met bought uh, my coffee for me you know just just these sorts of things you know talking about direct communication that can be incredibly off-putting for Americans in specific because you know, you kind of want to be polite, and there's some topics you just, it's just not polite to talk about. Oh, there's no such thing here. I've had some people say some very strange things. People are always asking, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? You're not Jewish. Why did you come here? Uh-huh. You know, wh- who are you? Where are you from? And I, like, tell them, no, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic, and and they're, like, asking me my opinions on the Crusades, and I'm like, well, I probably feel the same way about the Crusades oh, no. as you, <laughs> you know? This isn't really what I want to talk about when I'm when I'm buying a bagel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think they're bad. <laughs> That's funny. That's really, really funny. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of that. But real quick, I do want to talk about traveling during this year of COVID. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what it was like to travel in the midst of the, the really big outbreak in October. I came here in October. In, in, in Hebrew, we have a word called balagan, like crazy. I think it comes from Yiddish, actually. So like when something's chaotic and crazy, it's balagan. And truly, like just getting here, getting my visa, getting my uh, entry permit was balagan. Like like the, the people in the embassy, this is what I'm talking about, right? I had to call them and email them. They lost my visa. They lost my passport. Dad had a cow. <laughs> no, you know, like he was like, how can they lose your passport? I'm sure. And I didn't even know I was getting to come into Israel until like June or July. Because I really thought, okay, I'm going to have to do it online gonna have to be in mom and dad's house and then finally the summer i got an email that says my original program was canceled just no warning the middle eastern studies program i was supposed to take was canceled so they said okay take your scholarship do another program and i'm like it starts in a month what you know so i found this program it's actually really good for me i really like it so i think i got lucky because it's, it's really been challenging and interesting. Sometimes these things just sort of work out this way, don't they? Truly, truly. These new opportunities. Well, and so that's what happened. And so then, then I was like, okay, time to get my uh, my visa. And this year they have, you have the normal visa for a student. Then you also have to have what's an entry permit, proving that you're going to go into quarantine when you get here. And you got to take a test for corona and so on and so forth, proving that 
you have like a sponsor institution or whatever. Anyway, so I, I was working with the embassy in Houston. I didn't want to drive all the way there. So I mailed my documents overnight and called every day, emailed every day. They barely responded. They answered and they'd be like, yeah, we have a long queue of people. Like, just wait. Then once this woman answered and she was like, yeah, like, um, what's your name? We lost your documents. Um, we'll, we'll have to look for them. And I'm like, how do you, how many documents do you have? And how did you lose it? So the people from Fulbright, this woman called Noah, she's like an Israeli uh, American and she's the coordinator here in this country. And she called them and she was like, okay, like I'll, I'll try to take care of this for you. And then a few days later, they emailed me. They're like, we found your documents. It's been processed. We're sending it to you. And, and when I met her the first time, I was like, Noah, like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know, that was such a pain in the butt. I really appreciate you. I was like, thank you for calling. And she was like, oh, I did much more than call. So I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but that's just how things have to work sometimes. You know, it's not, it's not very fair. You have to know what you're doing. You have to have some clout. You know what I mean? So that, that's what happened. So sorry for that long story. But anyways, I got my documents and that's how. Okay, good. <laughs> and you came here and you had to quarantine and I talked to you during that time. 14 it was basically days. just 2 weeks of boredom. Yes. yes. <laughs> the first word in Hebrew that I learned was bidud, which means quarantine. The second word I learned was sager, which means like lockdown, like the sort of the the businesses are restricted. I was in quarantine with this guy from Kenya and this guy from China, and the guy from China, Shaomin, I became really good friends with. We would just as you do when you're stuck with strangers in a very small room, you know, we just played checkers and ate a lot. Well, tell me a little bit about the general response to COVID in Israel. And then let's talk about the vaccination push because Israel has been in the news a lot lately. Yes. For being one of the first countries to really have a successful wide-scale uh, nationwide vaccination program. I remember when I was... Back in the States in limbo, you know, this was April, May, I was in this limbo and I would read these articles like, um, I think I read this one in like America magazine, the, Je the Jesuit uh, review. And this guy was talking about how he's like, he's like a Jesuit father here in Israel. And like, they can't even go more than 500 um, meters from their house. And like, everyone's really sad and freaked out. Everything's closed. A serious lockdown, like probably like Thailand is very serious. At the very beginning of this pandemic, Israel was very serious. Then when I came, or before I came, they like opened it up really prematurely. They opened up restaurants and bars like they did in the U.S. In case of skyrocket, the date I arrived, actually, I think it was 30 September, there was the highest uh, daily rate of cases like in the whole year. The day I arrived, they also implemented a lockdown. So it was nice because I could spend the lockdown in quarantine. So it was like, okay, I guess it's not so bad since I'm stuck anyways. So the cases did go down, but they had several waves that they would lock it down, they would open it up, they would lock it down, they would open it up. And it's mm -hmm. really become political because there's all these uh, accusations of Benjamin Netanyahu about extortion and bribery and corruption. And people say, you know, the government is implementing these lockdowns and implementing this big vaccine push because one, they want the BBs to seem more popular and two, like, there's some relationship between the lockdowns and if there's lockdowns, they don't have elections. So they postpone the elections. And if, if Israel does well with Corona, Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu will be more popular. And, but, but actually Israel had one of the highest infection rates. So I, I don't exactly know what it was. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, one, it's a pretty independent culture, just like the United States. People feel very independent. People feel very self-sufficient. So once again, I think it comes libertarian back. bent. Yeah, and it comes back to this culture. There's always been war. You know, it's a, a nation founded by refugees. So people really feel independent. Like I got to take care of myself first. Exactly. Right? And at the same time, there, I mean, there are some very conscientious and sensible people too, especially like secular educated classes. I would say like, that's, that's just the truth. And the thing is, in the ultra Orthodox Haladi communities, they're like, you know, the most conservative um, Jewish communities and they're not a small population. And the thing is, like, these communities were having services in their synagogues, and they were having big weddings. Um, and, you know, some of the Arab Christian and Muslim communities were having big weddings. And I'm not saying that to vilify them, but it's just a fact. And there is also this uh, sentiment of anti-vax here. Um, and some of them are the very religious Orthodox Jewish communities who don't trust the vaccine, and the rabbis are not being good role models. 
And I'm, I hope I just don't sit here and just complain, but I just feel like that's an important part of it. I, I listen, I know there's been people, some people are very, very conscientious, and I truly think the majority of people are. And unfortunately, the bad examples, just like in the States, stand out. You know, there was an Arab bus driver who was beat up for, for insisting that passengers wear the masks. There's been protests and demonstrations, but at the same time, it's like, there's really good people and the healthcare here is, is a good system and they're working very very hard and i'm so fortunate because i have vaccines you know yeah you were the first person in our family to get a vaccine so anyway so that was sort of the vibe um and most of the time i've been here things have been closed no bars nothing like that restaurants take out but there's a lot of restaurants and stores that bend the rules like they'll it's takeout only, but you can take it out and you can just sit right out there. At a very conveniently placed uh -huh, table. Uh -huh. right? Or yeah, table or like they have like little streets that are blocked off and they'll set up crates there. Or like a clothing store because clothing stores were not allowed to work either. They'll like open their little garage door halfway and you can like poke your head under and tell them what you want. And it's like delivery only. They, they like deliver it 10 meters to you. And so these kinds of things. But... I don't know, like my, my professors, my, my uh, coordinators have been very supportive and, and helpful. And, and we had some in-person outdoor meetings, which were really good. So that's, that's been sort of an adaptation that I'm glad for because I could meet people in, in a way that's pretty responsible. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't really know if it's been any better or worse than the U.S., but what is better is that we have the vaccine. I mean, I would think that you've got to be one of the last demographics that could get it, just a healthy dude in your 20s. I mean... If you've got it, it means that most of the population has already received it. Except for the ones who don't want it. And that's not a small population. And, and the other controversy is that there is a global conversation about whether the Israel Ministry of Health has an obligation to vaccinate Palestinians in the West Bank. Since it has all these access to vaccines and it has this huge sweeping program where the state's paying for so much of it. And really anybody who's over 16 can get it. Even if you don't have insurance, I'm pretty sure, you know, you can get it. I got it the day before Purim, which is funny. And mm -hmm. we have to talk about that later. So that's the controversy. And I, you know, personally, I think that maybe there's not a legal obligation for them to, but, but they, I think there is a surplus. And especially because a lot of Israeli citizens are scared to get it. There's a surplus. And I really wish, yeah. you know, I'm an idealist and I think those resources should go to the West Bank as well. And, and only so far, they've really just given symbolic quantities of the of the vaccines to West Bank people. It's bad over there. I haven't been over yet. I want to. I want to go to Bethlehem and to Ramallah. But, you know, I have no business going right now um, because of the problems they're dealing with. And also, you know, it's not good for my health mm -hmm. either. And so I'm just going to wait. But I really, it's hard. It's it's um, unfair. So that's, that's sort of been the, the controversy and a justifiable one. Interesting. Thank you for enlightening me as to that, because I was aware, obviously, you only hear certain news abroad, and the only news we really hear is about their effective program. We don't hear about the resistance. We don't hear about Israeli anti-vaxxers or, or the controversy with, with uh, the Arab population either. But it has been effective. It's been very impressive, very organized. You know, so that is something to be commended for. You know, you can both criticize strongly and commend i think at the same time you know they even did this thing because the stereotype about tel aviv is that the people in tel aviv it's like rio de janeiro and berlin they love to party they love to go to the beach they love to dance and drink alcohol and so they did this thing where they gave shot for a shot and so you would take the shot and they would give you a shot of oh, liquor. that's hilarious and so i don't know i feel like that maybe that reached some of those people who, who were too lazy i don't know that is so funny. Did you get a shot? <laughs> no, I went to an I went to a normal health clinic, unfortunately. So I I did get a I got a cool sticker though. <laughs> so Kyle, you mentioned uh, Purim, and that's yes. actually the next thing I wanted to talk about because you have been in Israel over some really important holidays. You've been there for Christmas. You've been there for Hanukkah, Purim now. Yeah. And all of this with the background context of COVID-19. I know. So I want you to talk a little bit about your experience during these really important holidays with everything that's going on. How do you, how did you celebrate these days and um, how, how'd you do it responsibly? Cause I, I know that you did. So tell us about that. Well, I, I guess what happened first was Hanukkah. Um, 
it's nice to actually be here because a holiday like Hanukkah in Israel is not like this big commercialized thing like Christmas in the U.S. It's like a few weeks and the grocery stores sell candy and they sell the gelt. And you sent me some. I did in the mail. There's a few get-togethers and actually most of my colleagues, I would say like not most of them, but like the biggest group are like Jewish Americans. So anyways, they, they wanted to have a little Hanukkah get-together. So we did that, you know, with, with a small uh, a small group of people. And we kind of have our little COVID bubble, which, you know, is... They tell you, you know, not to just hang out with other Americans when you come to another country. And I, I you know, it's a little different this year, right? Anyways, to be safe, to be responsible. So so there's, you know, with a, with a few people in my building, we, we lit the menorah. They wanted to watch the Rugrats Hanukkah special. And we... I, is... Wow, I, I didn't know there was such a thing. The more you know. I know, and and so I learned how to make latkes, which is fun. And latkes are not super Israeli, you know. They're like really Ashkenazi thing to make, and so like people who are from other Jewish ethnicities aren't aren't making latkes so much, even on Hanukkah. But most people want to eat greasy food and fried food. But your American colleagues probably, because in America, when we think of Hanukkah, that's like the first thing we right. think of. That's like our immediate association is latkes. And then, and then, other than that, I mean, I just saw big menorahs everywhere. Maybe there would be like a festival where they light the menorah in the square. I, I, one of my good friends, he's, uh, he used to be Haladi, like ultra orthodox, and now he's like still kind of orthodox. And I really like him. And he and I think very different about the world, which is cool. And we have such a healthy sort of relationship and conversations about because we think very different about politics and religion. But it's been very interesting getting to know him. And he liked it though, like the sort of the more like orthodox way of 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 the the menorah ceremony and you know you're supposed to like light it and then you have the prayers that you sing and you can like meditate on it for like a certain amount of time is like if you were traditionally you know and so i did it that way with him too which was kind of fun and we sat on the the balcony of our building and we did that and we drank wine and kept vigil of the menorah so maybe it would have been different in another year well, that was closer to when you arrived, I'm sure, and you were still a little bit probably nervous, and you weren't vaccinated yet either, and that kind of leads us in into Christmas yes. when you also still weren't vaccinated. I wasn't vaccinated. Which I also assume normally in Israel would be a really big deal. Um, probably this year was a bit different, so. Well, yeah, that's true, especially in like a city like Bethlehem or Nazareth, that these like right. Christian majority For obvious towns. reasons. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have gone to Bethlehem, but the border was closed. You know, the border with West Bank was closed, so I didn't go. But I went to Jerusalem, and I went with one Israeli friend and one Mexican friend, and I thought long and hard, you know, should I go? Is it too much risk? Is it a bad idea? We planned, we were staying at Airbnb for a whole week. We didn't get a holiday, so we did our classes on Zoom, like we were doing anyways. Yeah. Sort of the philosophy I developed was that I need to be religious about the masking and the distancing. If I do that, the risk is more to myself than to other people. Because if I travel to Jerusalem and I follow the rules, and even if other people don't, which they don't all, then I may be putting myself in some risk, but I hopefully and mitigating the risk that I can put others at if I follow all of the rules. And I said, you know, I'm not going to be here long. And when am I going to get to go to Jerusalem on Christmas? So I did. It was crowded. And I really tried to be cautious. Um, at this point, all the museums were closed. But I did get to go to churches. I stayed in the Muslim quarter. So that was pretty neat. We had this roof that we that could go on. And, and you could see the Dome of the Rock. And you could hear the Azan, the call to prayer, like every night from all these different minarets just echoing and uh, it was it was really beautiful and you could actually hear the christian church bells and you could hear the maybe maybe you could hear a shofar like the the horn in the synagogue i i think there was a couple times on the sabbath maybe we heard that so maybe you could hear all three at once if you really pay attention and yeah so i i went and explored churches i went to the church of the holy sepulcher i didn't love it the church of the holy sepulcher I thought I would. I thought it would be really meaningful. I remember Christmas Eve, I was with my friend, uh, and he's like a, a Christian from China. So we did the Stations of the Cross together, the, the Via Dolorosa. And the shopkeepers kept harassing us and were like, you want to buy some rosaries? You know, you, you, you want some souvenirs? And it, I was very put off because I was like, I want to have this spiritual experience here. And <laughs> obviously we stand out. And I first was annoyed, but then I was like, you know what? Like the thing is, they're probably not doing good this year. You know, they have lost all their tourism. 
They need to make money. They need to put bread on the table. So I can be empathetic. But that happened. And then I went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it was a little too crowded. I was, I was really nervous. I had like double masks on. Yeah, it's pretty. And it's really neat because you see all these, there's like Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Armenian Orthodox, all these different denominations that have their, their own altars, which is cool. And you could definitely see people from all over the world, like Indian Christians, uh, you know, Orthodox Christians, probably less diversity than other years, you know, because most of the people going would have to already live in Israel, probably, because you can't get in the border. But, and I was just really discouraged because I saw all these Orthodox priests wandering around with no mask on, and I was just like, why do you have to set such a bad example? You know, it's just not that hard. And, and they just, it's this whole idea of, like, clericalism, right? Like, I... I and I, I don't need to, I don't guess I don't have to politicize every single individual behavior, but it was really annoying and I was really put off and I went home grumpy, honestly. I was like, what's wrong with me? I just go around and I'm grumpy at everything. The next day, uh, the next day was Christmas, well, it was Christmas Eve. And, and that's when I went to the Pontifical Biblical Institute that is in Jerusalem. And I don't even remember who told me to go there, but someone told me to go there. And I went for their, their Christmas Eve liturgy at like 7 p.m. The, uh, the, the, the priest there is, is called David Neuhaus. And he used to be the vicar for Hebrew-speaking Catholics. And so he's an ethnic Jew who converted, who's, who was born in South Africa and became a Roman Catholic at some point. And there's a very size, not, it's a few hundred people in this Hebrew-speaking Catholic community. So they, they have Hebrew-speaking masses throughout the country. But anyways, this night it was in English. So it was like an English liturgy. And it was just very simple. Like of all these like... And there are some really beautiful churches. The two that I love the most are the Church of All Nations and the Church of St. Peter. These two are very beautiful. And, and, I, and I, I had some... You know, I felt that those were much more meaningful to me than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But what meant the most to me was this Pontifical Institute. And it was in this, just this very simple chapel. And I sat next to this, like, tiny, like, ancient nun. And we were all very distant. There were, like, not many people in there at all. We had our masks, you know. And that resonated with, with me more. And, and afterwards, I got to talk to a few of the Jesuit priests for a while. You know, there was one from Vietnam and one from France and the David Neuhaus, who's Israeli. And they were just so kind. And I loved talking to them. You know, that was such a fond travel experience for me because I had had, I had a frustrating day and I felt guilty for feeling, feeling uh, annoyed on Christmas. And so then I stood around and, and chatted with them a bit, had some just delicious Arab-Israeli food that our Airbnb host uh, made for us. And so, and it just kind of wandered around the city. It was quiet. It was very quiet. I think it might have been on a, on a, a Friday or a Saturday anyways when it's already quiet here. And this was just even more quiet because it was Christmas Eve. So we just kind of explored Jerusalem at night. And there was Christmas lights. There was Christmas lights in the, especially in the Arab parts of the city where there were lots of Christmas lights. That is so cool. Well, and that kind of leads us into the, uh, one of the most recent things that you've done, a, a third festival, uh, the festival of Purim. Yes. And, you know, obviously, while I think our listeners probably know about Christmas and Hanukkah, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Purim. Yes, and I'm certainly no expert. I really, I, I mean, I've heard of Purim, but before I came here, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know its significance. And I would I would say, I think besides the high holidays like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, I think it's the time that's like the third most common for people to go to the synagogue. It's like the Mother's Day of the this Christmas Mother's Day Easter <laughs> Christians, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. So it's about Queen Esther. So it's the book of Esther. You find it in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Bible. And the book of Esther goes something like, let's see, like there was this king and he was a uh, Persian and he wanted to kill his former queen. So he killed her. Then he wanted to look for a new queen and he took Esther as his wife. He's very Henry VIII-like. <sighs> well, yeah, I mean, it was just such a bloody patriarchal <laughs> society. But, but so so... He took Esther became his wife, but he didn't know she was from the nation of Israel. the The Jews were like the the slaves; they were, uh, you know, an oppressed and and victimized group, uh, and under the Persian Empire. and 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 one of his advisors, Haman, had this plot that he was going to murder all of the Jews in the empire. And Queen Esther used her 
relationship with the king, and she used her position and her her cleverness to persuade him to change his mind because he loved Esther. I think I I, I don't know you know I don't know what what all is in the text, but but anyways, his feelings were uh, for Esther were were strong enough where she told him, I, you know, I'm one of them. I'm Jewish. I'm from Israel. And, and she persuaded him to stop the plot. And he executed this bad dude, Haman, who was going to slaughter all the Jews. And so, so they celebrate this, this time when Esther was a hero. And she stopped this plot that was going to result in such a horrible thing. And so that's, that's what Purim is about. On Purim, you know, in the synagogue, they read the scroll of the Megillah, the story of Esther, and it takes like 30 or 45 minutes. And there's different styles, like you can sing it, you can chant it. And it was so interesting, right? Because it was during Corona, so it wasn't inside the synagogue. But it was on the porch of the great synagogue of Tel Aviv. So everybody had their masks on, and everybody had their costumes on. Okay. And so it was a... And people had alcoholic beverages. Okay, well, what's... What's the deal with the costumes as well? Like you haven't explained that yet. You haven't, you haven't mentioned that <laughs> okay, yet. So, well, so it's, for people that don't it's know, it's a bit like I don't know, like like you know, you could think of things that you might think of for Halloween or for Mardi Gras. It's a little bit like that. And actually, I think sort of the cultural the cultural elements of Purim are in response to the Christian Mardi Gras. You know, even though the story is much older, okay, the way they celebrate maybe is is sort of responding to Mardi Gras because they have parades and costumes. Yeah. So why they wear costumes? I think it's because Queen Esther was in disguise. You know, actually, I don't know if anyone's explained this to me, but I think that's why. But, you know, I've heard heard this, that it's like a commandment, a mitzvah in the Bible that that on Purim, you're supposed to drink alcohol, you're supposed to make merry. And and one thing is, they say you're supposed to become so merry in your drinking that you don't tell the difference between male and female. So a lot of people, even like ultra-Orthodox, they dress in drag and they wear crazy costumes and colors. And, and so many things. So you're all standing on the steps of the Great Synagogue just drinking? Like like everyone's just yeah, getting drunk? Yeah, and in costumes. In crazy costumes. And so my, wow. And, and, and this, is, so this is a church. You know, it's like a church <laughs> service, right? But it's in a synagogue. And, and I've been to a few reformed right. synagogues in the U.S., you know, and they just pray and do, do things that I understand. And they were not like that. <laughs> yeah, so we're on the porch of the synagogue. Old men are wearing wigs and... and, and bear costumes and giraffe costumes and onesies are very popular um but many children and many women and you know if you know anything about the orthodox synagogues in this country it's like they're not super egalitarian the women don't usually get to sit by the men and here in this setting it was like not like that at all there was lots of women a lot of them didn't have their hair covered they were reading from the scroll from the megillah this guy was chanting and there was this kid in a king outfit with a robe and a hat, and he had a noisemaker. And every time you say the bad guy's name, Haman, you, uh-huh. you make the noisemaker. Here, I have it. I'll, sh- I'll, I'll show you the noise. Okay. And so so I have one. And, you know, they say Haman, and then you can go And, and it gets so, rowdy. That sounds like so much and fun. And as the service yeah. goes on, it gets rowdier, right? Because people have their wine and their arak. And yeah. people who don't... It seems, you know, like there was women in jeans and like Orthodox women aren't even supposed to wear pants. And so now do you think that this is because it was Purim or because it was coronavirus and it was just kind of different? This so I, what I think is, I think that. I mean, I think that people who are less observant will still want to go and hear the Torah reading, the Megillah reading on Purim. That sounds like what I mean, what a cool experience. How how incredibly fun. I mean, that is the kind of thing that really just makes you feel like you're connected. No, it was great. It was great. I didn't understand a word of the the Hebrew text besides the character's name. But you could understand the fun, though. Fun is a universal language. The kids having a great time. Adults being Uh stupid. Super cool. All right, so you've talked to us a little bit about how you have tried to engage in the local culture this year, this kind of strange year of COVID-19. And this year is atypical. True. You know, this is not the way it, it normally is anywhere. But let's talk a little bit about this in a normal year. You, you know, you've mentioned how you like to go to a place and really get to know it. So what are your tips? How do you, en- how do you engage in a local culture? How do you get to know the soul of a, of a place when you're traveling somewhere? Yeah, well, I, you know, I love, going to, I love going to religious services like we were talking about. 
before. Um, I loved going to the mosque in Turkey, and even in you know in Israel, I've been. I went to like uh, Catholic services and uh, in Tagalog and Spanish and uh, and Arabic. I I suppose a religion is such an inherent part of a person, but you know, for a lot of people, it can be very maybe intimidating to go to a house of worship for a faith to which they don't belong. So how would you recommend dealing with it? Because I think that that's an important barrier to break. That's an important way to, you know, to get yourself. And I agree with you to get yourself ensconced in a culture is to attend religious ceremonies, especially of those that you didn't grow up with that are different than your own beliefs. But how do, how, how would you recommend somebody to overcome their anxieties to do this? Because that's a pretty big leap for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm, I know that. I know that. I'm grateful to, I would say, friends who took me. You know, my friend who took me on Purim, I mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have gone alone. I probably wouldn't have known what to do. I wouldn't, you know what I mean? And so that was very hospitable and kind um, for him to take me, to, to just be like, here's what we do. Let me explain it to you. And besides that, you know, just putting yourself out there and talking to people, even when your Hebrew is bad or you speak English and maybe they don't, know that much English, but you just try to do the best you can. And you tell yourself, I'm never going to see this person again. So if I embarrass myself, you know, they'll think I'm a fool, but I'll never see their face again. And so I just talked, you know, I put myself out there and talked. And once your mouth opens and those first words come out, it gets easier. You know, you form that initial friendship. And then from there, you know, someone may show you sort of hospitality or generosity that they will explain the culture more or invite you or something and then it's sort of like it begins with that relationship and it helps you uh feel connected more afterwards which is what happened with you know some of my israeli friends you mentioned that the restaurants are closed one of my questions was about eating out i i assume you're just either ordering takeout or um cooking if i were to go to israel what is one dish only one dish that you would recommend that i cannot miss I mean, shakshuka is the thing. It has to be the thing. It's a dish of eggs cooked in like a tomato sauce. Yes, tomatoes and right. some other vegetables and then the eggs. And it's just so comforting. Is there like a restaurant, particular restaurant, a particular well, shop you like? There is, but I don't know what it's called. It's this place in Jaffa and it's just like all outside. And they give you lots of bread and some salad. And I wish I knew the name of it. I, I If I knew, I mean, I'll take you there when you come, but... But listen, you really can't go wrong with shakshuka. You know, there's a million falafel places. You can't go wrong with that either. You can't go wrong with sabih, which is another kind of sandwich. The sandwiches, man, I'm saying. Like, I I could come just for the sandwiches. Even the ones you get at cafes. I love sandwiches. And they have the best cheese, too. What is the strangest thing you have seen in Israel? Oh, wow. I have to think for a moment because I've seen a lot of weird things. Oh, I know. I know. Okay, the other day... Friday night, I was coming back from somewhere with my friends. Like, I think we had gone, I, I don't know, maybe we went somewhere for my class. I can't remember. But I was with, like, two of my friends. Or we had gone to the market, I think. We were walking back, and you cut through the park. It was, like, 6 or 7 o'clock. And all of a sudden, we hear these, like, drums. And then I see some people dancing. And then I get closer, and I'm like, okay, what is this? Is this, like, what kind of music is this? It doesn't sound Israeli. I get closer and it's like, this, this sounds like Indian music. Like, what, what's, what's this? Like, the way that the drums sound, the way that the tambourines sound. And then it begins to become clearer that there's, like, all these women in saris. Like, white saris. And then all these men have drums. And the men have, like, Indian garb. Like, um, like what is it called? Like, shalwar kameez or whatever. And they're all just, like, dancing and parading. And my German friend is like, oh, they're saying Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. But the men had the men had yarmulkes, huh. so which means that they're like probably Orthodox Jewish men, and and it's during the, the Jewish Sabbath. Weird. And here they are in the park. They're Hare Krishnas. They're they're saying Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and they're like parading in in this park at night. And there's nobody in the park, and they're just doing their little Hare Krishna thing. And these are like white Israeli people who have yarmulkes and and saris and and and. Would, did you ever get an explanation? Did I get an explanation? No, how would I? I wasn't going to stop them and be like, what are you doing? But we all thought that that was strange. That is so weird. 
Yeah, okay, that, that tops pretty much anything I would have um, guessed you would say. Well, I, there's been others, but that was just the other day. <laughs> well, that stands out for sure. Wow, weird. All right, well, Kyle, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Yes, my bro, I had so much fun. So where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, so I would say that I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, so it's at K-Y-D-E-S-R-O. Uh, I have an Instagram of the same name that I just made very recently. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And we look forward to having you again on sometime in hopefully the not too distant future. Thanks again. All right, and we're back. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the interview, and we were talking about this a little earlier, but I realized while listening to it, we've been friends for how long, Michael? How long have we known each other? Jeez. Like, at least 15 years, maybe, maybe yeah. longer. And I have never heard your brother speak as an adult. I mean, you probably remember my brother as the little child that ran around in little green suits at church. Like that little... Exactly. <laughs> five-year-old kid that wore a suit every Sunday I was just about to say that in my in my mind that's how I see him and it's it's really funny because he's one of our faithful followers of our Instagram page and so I was just kind of scrolling through his posts and I was just like he's an adult you're right because when I moved to university he was in fifth grade you know he was just a kid and then I came to Thailand, and then I was teaching kids his age, and some of my students were older than he was. So I've always thought of him as a kid, uh, until recently. No, no, yeah, he, he's a pretty interesting guy. I went into listening to that interview not knowing anything about Israel, really, other than yeah, the basic stuff. So it's interesting to hear an American's point of view living there, and... I really appreciated his honesty with it because it's, it's real easy to say, you know, Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, everything's great all the time and things like that. But he, he was very honest with things that are difficult things that maybe he understands, but isn't, you know, a big fan of, I, I got the impression that the abruptness that Israelis yeah. have and yeah. things like that. And just this straightforwardness, which as Americans, like, like you mentioned, we are not accustomed to. You're expected to make small talk with everybody. Thailand, it's kind of similar. Mm -hmm. How Thai culture is very polite, but when it comes to appearance, people tend to be very abrupt. And I said, that really shocks a lot of people. Like we would go into work and there would be some young lady fresh out of university and she would walk into the office on the first day and her boss, the like, Thai uh, manager would look at her and be like, oh, teacher, you're looking very fat today. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, no. Like, if you look a little bit tired, they'd be like, oh, teacher, you, you're looking ugly today. <laughs> and sometimes it's, a, it's different. Yeah, so I, I sympathized with him on that for sure. So I listened to this earlier today, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he mentioned, like, he hasn't been able to get involved with the locals as much as he would have liked. I think his first experience to really get involved with the locals was that Purim festival mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. I, I enjoyed him talking about Hanukkah and Christmas and how one of the most um, important sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was just kind of disappointing. It's kind of like the Alamo here. Texans will defend the Alamo, but we all secretly are just kind of like, eh. It's very small. It's small and it's old and it's, it's not that impressive. And with this one, it's supposed to be this big holy site. And he went home feeling grumpy. <laughs> I think that that can happen a lot when you travel. Mm -hmm. You build up these ideas for these famous sites in your mind. There's, there's something called, I think it's called Paris Syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this, yes. where people will go to Paris and they, they expect this beautiful, romantic city. And they get there and they realize it's kind of dirty. People are kind of rude. Everyone is trying to scam you. And, and they get really disappointed by that but you got to find these other ways i think mm -hmm. of connecting like then he ended up going to that pontifical institute and that was a better experience even though it was just in sort of a, a modern thing I, yeah. I don't know what it looked like but it wasn't it wasn't anything historic it wasn't an important building by any means but he connected with the people there yes connecting with 
the locals is important anywhere you go, but also trying to adjust your expectations based on circumstance is also really important when traveling because it's really, really easy to get bummed out and depressed when things don't work out how you want them to. Paris syndrome is a real thing that I know that people that I know have experienced. Same thing with New York city for a lot of people and you go there and it's just a place. Bangkok's the same way. Bangkok may have more temples than any other place probably ever, but (laughs) (laughs) right. What makes a place special really is the people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily the sites that you're going to see. The best parts about traveling are things like when, when, like he was talking about going to the the Purim. I I knew it was a a Jewish festival, and that's about it. I don't have much experience with Jewish people. I know two Jewish people, and neither are practicing. Israel's on my bucket list of places to go. I'm very very interested. I really enjoyed his perspective on all these things on on Hanukkah especially. The thing about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was the most surprising to me. Even on Christmas, it did not meet his expectations of what it was going to be. Right, and you would think that this year, of all years, where there's like almost no one there and you get to have this really mm-hmm. special experience without waiting in a line for hours, you would think that would be really special. I think he, he went into it expecting, you know, a, a spiritual experience, something very meaningful, and instead it was just frustrating. I think this goes just for travel in general is that like we we said a little bit earlier tempering your expectations and also recognizing that the experience that you get from a place is going to be you know it changes over time for example he was telling me uh, privately later on that he and a friend of his had tried to visit the via dolorosa the stations of the cross Mm -hmm. and just that like everywhere you were going people were trying to sell stuff to you it's like they were trying to have this contemplative moment and, like, there were guys trying to sell crowns of thorns. And he's like, that just seems, number one, inappropriate. <laughs> and, and number two, annoying, because I'm, we're trying to do, we're trying to do yeah. this little pilgrimage. But that's part of the experience nowadays, apparently, is having all these hawkers and, and touts on the street. And, and that's just what it's like, for good or for bad. But that's what it's like. And that's the experience. When Americans think of Israel, what do they think of? They think of Jerusalem. And that's really it. They don't think of Tel Aviv. And the fact that Tel Aviv is probably more accurate to real life than Jerusalem is. Yes, Jerusalem is crazy historic for three major religions. Just how, you know, Tel Aviv, the people like to party and drink and eat. And that's something you don't think about as an American when you think of Israel. You don't think about people partying and drinking and going to the beach. And you think of a very strict religious country but it's not all like that when he mentioned his beer was a craft brewery from tel aviv that blew my mind i was like you don't think about that at all if, if you were to ask me what do people in israel drink i would probably say wine if nothing else because like if you think biblically that's what they drink mm-hmm. you know water into wine and the last supper and all of that um that was two thousand years ago <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> like I learned from listening to him and through my own research, I know nothing about modern Israel. Everything I know about Israel is biblical, and that's not helpful at all. I I felt like I learned a lot from listening to him talk about it, even from his perspective, which may not be as involved as he would like. I think what we should do is we should interview him again once he's done there to get a new perspective with his permission, of course, I wouldn't mind cross-posting some of the pictures he took on our Instagram. Uh, we, we totally can. Yes, we totally can. He sent me a bunch. He emailed me a whole file full of them. Awesome. So I would like to do that with with anybody that wants to send their travel pictures. You, the listeners, if you want to send us your travel photos or uh, where you live, what you do, send them away. And if 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 we like them, we'll post them and we'll we'll give you a shout out in the post. You know, we yeah sure. we want this to be. As broad as possible. No, I really I really enjoyed the interview, and I really enjoyed getting his perspective on things, especially adventure, because, like, he, go back to the very beginning of the interview, he is a more of a cultural adventurer. 
I mean, he has done outdoor adventures. He worked at uh, Rocky Mountains National Park for a summer. I mean, he, he's done his 14er and all of that. He's done all of that. But I think for him, what he enjoys the most is getting to know people. Which is a whole nother type of adventure that everyone should yeah. should make time for. Because it is very, very interesting to meet people from different cultures in different countries. Yeah, and I mean, he's totally different from me in this regard, too, because he told me directly, like I was talking to him about this podcast, and I said we had recorded an episode about solo travel, and he said, oh, he, he doesn't enjoy solo travel. I like solo mm-hmm. travel. But for him, I think he's more about the people, both the people that he's with and the people that he meets. Yeah. That's something I'm not great about. I'm, I don't necessarily meet people when I travel, but I don't go out of my way to meet people. That's right. just me, and I'm totally different in that regard. Well, we will definitely have him back on in a couple months to see if he has a different perspective or if he's had any other adventures. Uh, now that he's been vaccinated, he's the first one in our family to be fully vaccinated. Now that he's got his vaccine, he'll be able to tr- travel a bit more freely. Yeah, so we'll certainly have him on, and we'll look forward to having more guests on in the future. Yes, we will. Yeah, so definitely stay tuned for those. It's time for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News. And I've got one here, and it's it's related to the <laughs> most adventurous place on Earth, Mount Everest. That is the most adventurous place on Earth. And so the article is called, Why Did Mount Everest's Height Change? It says the world's highest mountain is now officially a little higher, but that might not be the end of the story. As you can imagine, because I'm sure you went to an elementary school science class and you learned about plate tectonics. As you can imagine, <laughs> the height of Mount Everest isn't the same year to year. No. It, it changes. It moves. In recent years, the official height has been of some confusion. So Mount Everest sits squarely on the border between Nepal and China. And so it's up to the Chinese government and the, uh, the government of Nepal to actually measure it. But they've had different numbers because they were measuring using different methods. According to this article, the Nepalese team was using a satellite navigation marker on Everest Peak to gauge its height using GPS satellites, uh, and the Chinese team was using a constellation of navigational satellites along with other equipment. So they were using different methods to measure this, and they were getting different numbers. And it's not like a massive deal, but it's still, it's objective, right? It's a height. It, it, it's it's there's only one real height that's the thing because it's a physical thing that we can measure right there it shouldn't be a matter of debate okay what we need what we need is like a 30,000 something foot tape measure so then um they recalculated and this time the Nepalese crew took measurements with a laser equipped version of the original instruments called theodolites which were first used to gauge the mountain's height in 1856 by measuring angles using trigonometry. And officially, finally, both governments have agreed on an official height. Okay. And that is 29,031 feet above sea level. That's pretty high. The new height is now 0.86 meters or two feet higher than both countries' previous figures. It is rising. It is rising. Sometimes it shrinks. Sometimes it rises. It's quite an interesting phenomenon, but not an uncommon one. But there we go. But um, it, it, the fact that they both were in agreement means probably is pretty accurate. Well, I'm glad I'm, I can rest easy now. <laughs> Have you, if you could, if you were physically able, would you climb Mount Everest? Probably not. I, I feel like the risk is very great. And the reward, while yes, okay, the, you could say there's a great reward, but it's not like you'd be the first person. It's not like you'd even be the thousandth person to do it. So, I mean... You're just going to be some cool guy who climbed Mount Everest, but the risk and the reward just, to me... Isn't worth it. Don't balance. What do you think? I think I would, simply because I like being up high on things, and to know that you were the tallest person on Earth at that moment would be pretty cool to me. Now, would I actually go through with it? I don't know. I want to go to base camp. Base camp is one of my midterm goals like i intend to to do the walk to base camp sometime in the near future Mm -hmm. in the next couple years 
That's a different story. That's not climbing a mountain. That's just walking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long walk, but it's just a walk. Yeah. Have you ever read Into Thin Air? I have. And it's it's awesome. Harrowing. But it's it's really good. It is really, really good. And, and it's a true story. So, listeners, yeah, check out the book Into Thin Air. It's incredible. It's about a disastrous trek up Mount Everest. It's a movie too, isn't it? Well, what happened was, yeah, what happened was, you know that, that very famous IMAX film mm-hmm. that they filmed? The crew was there at the same time that uh, Krakauer was climbing the mountain. They were on the same trek. Okay. So they filmed it in IMAX at the same time because they were doing a documentary about it. So the IMAX film shows the... They get caught in a storm on the mountain. And the IMAX film, they they filmed the whole thing. And he wrote a book about it afterwards. It it was one of like the worst seasons on Everest ever or something. Anyway, yeah, check that book out. That's the kind of book that makes you feel cold Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you read it. (laughs) I want to have had the experience. I don't want to go through the actual part of doing it. It's kind of like I want to have been bitten by a shark. But I don't want to actually get bit by a shark. Uh-huh. <laughs> you just want the scar. I want to be able to say, I got bit by a shark. <laughs> Same thing. Like, I climbed Mount Everest. But I don't want to actually do it. That is what they call type 2 fun. Type 1 fun is when you're having fun doing something. Type 2 fun is when something is miserable when you're doing it, but is fun looking back on it. Camping. Well, some like like 50% of camping. Like trekking is awful. Like backpack camping is type 2 fun because because you don't have fun until you look back on You're it. Like, oh, that was nice. Yeah. It was miserable while you were doing it. That's funny. Fun fact. Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, but is not the tallest mountain in the world. The tallest mountain is Hawaii's Manua Kea. Mm-hmm. Manua Kea. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. But it's mostly underwater, so just a little bit pokes out of the water. But from... From foot to peak, it is actually the tallest. But you can't climb up it because it's submerged (laughs) (laughs) in the briny deep. Awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. We appreciate you all. Just another reminder to get outside and make that cup of coffee. You can find us pretty much everywhere. Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all at Attempt Adventure. You can visit us at AttemptAdventure.com. It's a wonderful website. We worked very hard on it. Click that little contact us button to write down your messages, anything like that. You can also contact us at hello at attemptadventure.com. We'd love to hear from you all. If you have had an adventure and you would like to be a guest on the show, reach out to us. We're always looking for interesting people who want to share their experiences with our listeners. Yeah. And if you have been on an adventure, get on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Tag us at hashtag attemptadventure. And we'll we'll be watching. I've been looking at the hashtag every day. So get out there, have an adventure, keep making your life interesting. Until next time, keep adventuring.